the book of Mark, chapter 8 this morning, as where we find ourselves. I'm preaching through the book of Mark, if you're a guest with us today. Mark, chapter 8, we're down to this point. I finished chapter 7 last week. Mark, chapter 8, is a chapter of very, very important events, and there are many of them. And I could spend literally weeks, maybe months, preaching in Mark 8. I will not. We began the chapter with chapter 8, the early part of the chapter. The Lord Jesus Christ is feeding the the 4,000. There are two accounts of the Lord miraculously taking a lunch and turning it into food, a creative work which only God could do. And he feeds the 4,000, and it's not a mistake in your Bible. They're two separate events. He even says so here in chapter 8. Then we go down to about verse 22 in your Bible there. And Jesus restores the sight of a blind man, another miracle. And then we come down to verse 31, and uh, I will read it with you. He began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man... Jesus himself must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be, and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, it's not impossible to predict your death. Many have done so. But nobody has ever predicted their, that they would die and then resurrect from the grave except one, and that's the Lord Jesus And he does that here. I want you to pay particular attention to that. It's not our text today. But I want you to note that. Jesus told the disciples that he was going to die in the very near future, and after he died that he would rise again. And he told them on numerous occasions. He didn't just tell them that one time. He told them repeatedly, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be cruelly treated And I'm going to die, and then after that, I'm going to resurrect from the grave. And so they had heard that. So his resurrection, while it was a shock to them in one way, they had been told it was unbelief that kept them from believing it. Now we come down, though, to the portion of the passage that I'm going to preach today from, and we will read beginning in verse number 34. I hate to ask you to stand one more time, but... I'm going to because, you know, you come here, you not only get a sermon and some great music, you get a workout. And so, but we stand in reverence to the Word of God, don't we? So, uh, we stood for our veterans and we honor them. Now we stand for God's Word and we honor it as well. Verse number 34 began reading with me, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And what shall it profit a man? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Heavenly Father, will you add your blessing to this reading of your word and to the preaching of it as we look today for your truth and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. My subject this morning is the cost of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. And the text verse is verse 34. Now, everybody aloud together, read it with me from the first word. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The context of this passage today is not salvation. Jesus is not telling us how to be saved here. He is telling us how to be disciples of His. That's a very important thing because the Bible says categorically over and over. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, by grace, and which means unmerited favor, getting something you don't deserve. It says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves or self-effort. It is the gift of God. By definition, is a gift, a gift is something you don't pay for or earn or deserve. Someone just gives it to you because they care for you. So he is not talking about how to be saved. He is talking about the demands upon us once we are saved. I hear people sometimes say about our church, well, it's pretty demanding out there. It's not demanding at all when you compare it to what our Lord Jesus Christ said a Christian is to do. He said we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him. Now, we're not saved by following Jesus. Let me make that clear to you. Somebody walks out here today and says, I'm just going to make a vow, a resolve. I'm just going to start following Jesus. That's not salvation. Salvation is not you trying to follow Jesus. Salvation is receiving the gift that he bought and purchased with his precious blood when he hung upon the cross. It is entirely, fully, completely, totally, absolutely by grace through your reception of it in faith. That is salvation. James says, though, to balance that up, James says, if you have faith but there are no works, your faith is dead, being alone. Faith without works is dead, being alone. And the question is, if you're sincere about this and serious about this, how long can a person truly believe in Jesus Christ and not follow Him? Is it possible long-term in your life to truly believe in a saving manner and at the same time disobey the Lord on everything that He says to do? Many voices today would tell us that. We call that easy believism. They tell us, oh, all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ and pray that prayer one time, and you got it forever. But the Bible is very, very clear. Faith without works is dead. Somebody said it like this very beautifully. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith 
that remains alone. Let me say it again. We're saved by faith alone. But if that faith is valid, it will not remain alone. There will be fruit. There will be works. There will be a following, a seeking to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice three verbs in the text, though. Verse 34. Whosoever will come after me, you may want to underscore them in your Bible. Let him, one, deny himself. The demands of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. Number one is that we deny self. Number two, that we take up the cross. Not Jesus' cross, our cross. We take up the cross. And number three, that we follow him. Follow him. Now, let's look at those just briefly today. First, he says, if you are going to be my disciple, you must be prepared to deny yourself. What does that mean? It's not talking about giving up chocolate or, um, you know, beefsteak or something that you like or, or playing golf or going shopping. It's not talking about things like that at all. It means that out of pure love for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, that you and I surrender the right that we have as human beings to do what we want to do. Now, that makes it pretty demanding, doesn't it? Deny yourself. He says, you relinquish the right as a human being to do what you want to do, and in exchange, you begin to do what I want you to do as your Savior, the one who bought you. I think there are three areas particularly, and you may want to note them. Number one, I think it means we relinquish the right to sin. And as I preach to this great congregation, both here and by way of television today, many of you are Christians and you know the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a time you were saved. You are a saved person. But you know what? You've always held back. You've held back. And there are things in your life you know they are wrong. You know that God were, God's Word forbids those things. You know that God's Word commands things that you don't do, sins of both omission and commission. And yet you clutch those things to your bosom. You hold on to those things anyhow. Now, if you're going to be a disciple, you can't have that reserved area over there. You can't make conditions You can't barter with God. God, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. Lord, I'll come to church, but don't ask me to tithe. Lord, I will teach a Sunday school class, but I'm not going to witness to anybody. Lord, I'll sing in the choir, but now I'm not going to give up this little thing that I enjoy doing here. That's what it means to deny self. That you deny yourself the right that you have as a human. It's not a wrong thing necessarily. And you give up that right to those things that are wrong that you know are in your life. The second thing that I think it means is that you relinquish the right to your time, the right to your time. You know, in America, we've learned to compartmentalize our time, and we're pretty adroit at it, I'll tell you. We're pretty good at it. I ask people sometimes, will you help us? We need some people to serve in this area. Oh, I don't have time. Now, 
A disciple would never say, I don't have time. That won't even be in his or her vocabulary. A disciple will say, I will pray about it, but you know, I, I realize all my time belongs to him. You may legitimately not be able to do it. The Lord may not call upon you to do it, but don't ever say, I don't have time because what you're doing is claiming 100% of your time for yourself. And if you're going to be his disciple, you understand that every day and every minute that pops up on the calendar doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. We're so, so, so close to eternity if we but knew it. Adrian Rogers used to say, your heart is a funeral drum beating a march to the grave. It's kind of solemn, but it is very true. Yesterday after our sports ministry was concluding about noon, I walked up to a man. I said, I want to thank you. You do such a great, great job. I was watching him. He was pitching the ball to the kids, and he was coaching them and pitching and, and, and doing it all at the same time. He would say to a little boy, Put your hands together on the bat, back up a little, move forward. He was teaching the children. They're just little old kids this high. You know, they didn't know what to do. And I was watching how he engaged with those children, his interest and his heart in them. And we laughed and we talked. And two hours later, he's in the emergency room with a heart attack. Let, let me tell you, you don't have any claim on your time. You just think you have a claim on your time. Just like that, your time can change. It is not in your hands. To be a disciple means we relinquish our sins that we've held on to. We relinquish our time that we justify that we don't have time to serve God with. We relinquish our money and our possessions because, again, it all belongs to Him. I wouldn't have any money. If, I wouldn't have any possessions if He didn't give me the health and the opportunities to be able to earn that money and buy those things that I possess today. I relinquish that right to him. That's what it means to be his disciple. He said, if you love me and you follow me, you give up houses and lands and fathers and mothers and children, and you put him first. You make him Lord. Now, that's pretty solemn stuff. I call this serious Christianity. <laughs> serious Christianity. Not the kind of Christianity that's popular in America today. We're trying to tone it down and water it down and make it palatable and get as close to the world as we can. That's not the Christianity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a Christianity where he did not apologize for demanding everything that we are and everything that we have. The call to be a disciple. Hard words for us today. As Charles Colson said, in a generation that practices radical individualism. Mark that term in your mind. Radical individualism. Chuck Colson started writing about radical individualism years ago. It is so true. In other words, I'm going to do what I want to do and don't even think that you can suggest to me that I do anything other than what I want to do. Radical individualism. The me generation, they call our times. Self-centered life is the American model right now. Jesus Christ says, look, I don't care. That may be the American way, but if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, 
deny yourself. Second thing he says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. To take up the cross implies, of course, a a voluntary act. You take up the cross is what he's saying here. Take up the cross. I was talking to a fellow about that, and he said, you know, he was having trouble, marital problems. He said, you know what my cross is, Brother Monroe? And I said, no, what is it? He said, my mother-in-law. I said, no, you're wrong. Your mother-in-law is not your cross. Your cross is something you take up. Did you take her up voluntarily? He said, no, she just came with the, with the deal. <laughs> That's what I thought. No, your cross is not your mother-in-law. Your cross is not even cancer. You say, I have cancer. That's a cross to bear. That's not the cross Jesus is talking about. It may be a real cross in your life. But you didn't take it up. You didn't say, I want some cancer. No. It's a voluntary act. Take up the cross. Some people have to deal with handicaps in life. You didn't ask for that handicap. But the cross is something you take up. You reach down and pick it up. The cross to the, Lord, to the people in the Lord Jesus' day was a horrible place. It was the death chamber of today. It was the place where executions occurred. The cross was the place where polite society viewed it as a place of shame and humiliation. I suggest to you this morning that if you take up the cross of Jesus, you will take up his shame and his humiliation as well today in the culture in which we're living. What is it to be a disciple? Jesus demands a lot. It costs. The cost is very high. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. And the last one, he says, follow me. What does it mean to follow him? We read those words. Do we really think through those words? What did he mean when he said, you follow me? I'll tell you what he meant. He meant you obey me. To be a disciple means you obey him. You submit your will to him. And what do you obey in and how? You obey the Scripture. And so he says to you, love your neighbor. And you say, Lord, you don't know my neighbor. He said, yes, I do. And you love your neighbor. He said, forgive those who wrongfully use you or hurt you. Well, Lord, but that bothers me. It hurts. They're wrong in how they treat me. I understand that, but if you won't be my disciple, if you're following me, you forgive those who despitefully use you. Go into all the world and be my witnesses. Don't be ashamed of me. But, Lord... Nobody today really does that. You obey me, the Lord Jesus Christ here says. Hard words, tough words. Now notice verse number 35. Verse number 35, he gives us the motivation for why we would do this. And what's the motivation? Whosoever will save his life will lose it. You try to hold on to your life, your time, your possessions, you try to make all your own decisions and leave God out. Just pray your sinner's prayer and go and live your life. 
But he says, if you try to hold on and grasp your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake in the gospels, then you will save it. Plenty of people today are living life the way they want to live it. But you know what? Those people are finding out that life is hollow and empty and meaningless and purposeless. If you want to save your life, to have a life of meaning and substance and, and, and goodness and reality, then you can't negotiate with the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow him. It's a paradox, isn't it? Give it away to get it rather than trying to grasp it and lose it. It's a paradox. Now, we come then down to verse number 38. I'm going to skip the next verses. I preached on them a year ago, and I'm going to preach on them again, Lord willing, maybe in a few weeks. But right now, for our concern today, go to verse 38. And then there's this warning. It's a strong warning. Whosoever, therefore, will be ashamed of me and of my words. Note that phrase, of me and of my words. Jesus said, in this adulterous and sinful generation, boy, what a better description of our world today. An adulterous, sinful generation. Does that not describe America and the world we live in today? An adulterous and sinful generation. And Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in the public pressure that that brings because of the immorality of our age, then I'll be ashamed of you. I know one thing. I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me. The greatest fear I could ever have is that he would not say, that he would say to me, you let me down after I died on Calvary's cross for you, Bill. Oh, my, what horror. So we must not be ashamed of Jesus and his words in this adulterous generation. My mind goes back. This week as I studied, I was reminded of an old song, and I learned it Growing up, I can't remember when I didn't hear that song. I've heard it all my life. I was a little boy up in the hills of West Virginia, up on the mountainside. There's a little white church. My daddy was the pastor. There probably is 50 or 75 people in the whole congregation. I'm standing there at that bare floor, that little old church, holding on to my mama's hand. Those people up there were plain people. They weren't sophisticated people, simple folks. What they call God-fearing folks. You don't even hear the term anymore. God-fearing people. Authentic people, genuine people. They came to church because they wanted to be there, not to be seen. I'm standing there as a little old boy. My daddy's up there in the pulpit. And those plain people are singing from the bottom of their heart. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. Think about that word shame. But I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost 
sinners was slain. And as a little boy, I came to the realization that I was lost if I didn't have Jesus in my life. And I can hear them sing. So I'll cherish, think of that word, cherish, the old rugged cross. To my trophies, at last I lay down. There's another word to think about, cling. I will cling to the old rugged cross. Cling. And exchange it someday for a crown. I grew up in that. I learned that the gospel is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31. Jesus told him he was going to die. And Peter grabbed him by the shoulders. He took him. And in another, it, it has the idea, he took him by the shoulders. And, he, and you can see him look face to face with Christ. And he began to rebuke him. Verse 32, because Jesus had said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be rejected, and they're going to crucify me, and they're going to kill me, and after three days, I'm going to rise again. And Peter said, no, Lord, don't do that. You can't do that. You'd leave us if you did that. We need you here. And what did Jesus say to him? The Lord Jesus looked at him and says, get behind me, Satan. He said, Peter, that thought, that idea, those words that you're stating, they come from the devil. You're trying to keep me from the cross. And listen, Peter, if you keep me from the cross, there'll be no salvation for you or for anybody else. I must give my life the ransom for many. And he rebuked Peter. That verse right there tells me that the heart of the gospel, the core of the gospel is that Christ died, he was buried, and he resurrected from the grave for us. So here I am up there in that little church as a little boy. My daddy's the preacher. Christianity was the default position for me. I didn't think about, am I not going to become a Christian? No, I believed if I rejected Christ, I would go to hell. I really believed that stuff. And it was the default position. I became a Christian. I didn't think of any alternative. Why would I even want to think of an alternative? And I grew up, and then we moved to South Carolina. And I went to college. And America began to change. And I went to the university, and they taught me about secularism, that you can live in this life without God. They taught me about pluralism, that there are many gods. You don't really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, do you? Do you believe that everybody else is lost other than those who believe in Jesus Christ? What kind of person are you? Pluralism, the religion of many gods. And then I was taught about postmodernism. It was just coming in. There are really no moral absolutes. All truth is relative. What makes you think your truth is any better than somebody else's truth? What arrogance on your part that you would even consider such? And we adopted multiculturalism, that no one religion or culture is any better than any other, that they're all equal. Just pick the one you want. Life is a cafeteria line. Go down the line. I'll take a little Buddhism. I'll take a little Hinduism. I'll take a little Confuciusism. I'll take a little 
Islam, I'll take a little Christianity. They're all about the same. Don't they all lead to the same place? And America was changing. It was rapidly changing. Political correctness is the last car on that train. That no one should ever be made to feel uncomfortable no matter how aberrant, no matter how evil their lifestyle or their belief system is, that everybody ought to be treated with kid gloves. The truth would be sacrificed for people's approval. It's a long ways from that little chapel on the top of the hill in West Virginia to today's world. I've seen an evolution in my ministry. I've had a long and blessed ministry, and I've seen a big evolution. I've seen this country go from Christianity is right. It's what we built the nation on. To Christianity is wrong. That those people treated other people wrongly. And Christianity is bad. To today, Christianity is bad. We went from Christianity is truth. It is right. It is God's way. It's the way the country was built to wrong. Question everything about it. America is no good. To today, Christianity is bad. Bad. And in that climate, I remind you of Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. Whoever will be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and evil generation, 2014, of him I will be ashamed. Notice what Jesus said there in verse 38. Not only he said, are you not to be ashamed of me? You're not to be ashamed of my words, my words. There are two areas I believe today that his words are under attack like no other. One of them is in the area of the sanctity of life, that life is sacred. It's sacred at all stages from conception until death. It is sacred under all conditions. I don't care how elderly or how handicapped or how ill or how the quality of life has nothing to do with it. It is a sacred gift of God until he withholds that gift. And it's under attack today. The words of Jesus are under attack. And the second area is the dignity of marriage. That's under attack. Marriage today A marriage in the Bible is the conjugal union of a man and a wife, a male and a female, a man and a woman, period. Any other kind of marriage is a farce. These men and women that stood up here with me, I don't believe they went and fought and risked their life so we can completely change the definition of what a family and a marriage is about. I don't think they had that in mind. I'm going to go and spill my blood somewhere in Korea or Vietnam in order that we can have freedom to love whomever we wish, as they say in the news. If you think that I'm exaggerating the proposition, listen to this. Last week, last week, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, federal judge John Jones III told 
lesbian and gay challengers to Pennsylvania's ban on gay marriage. And I quote, one of the harshest opinions ever issued from a federal bench. This judge, Judge Jones, uh, John Jones III, said to a lesbian and gay group challenging the Pennsylvania law, saying that marriage was to be between a man and a woman, quote, you are better people than those whose law these laws represent, and it is time to discard them into the junk heap of history, end of quote. It's time, he said, for us to dispose in the junk heap of history the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman and a natural family as God created it. Researching this message about being ashamed of Jesus, I Googled up all the topics and was reading them. And I read one that absolutely blessed my heart. There's a man, a professor of law named Robert George. He holds the most prestigious chair of law at the university, or at Princeton University, one of the Ivy League schools, one of the most prestigious places in all the country, educationally. There's his picture. Robert George spoke on the 13th of May, just two weeks ago or so now, at the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. It was held at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. This very prestigious professor spoke to over 800 people, including cardinals and bishops and, and priests and lay people and uh, a sprinkling of Protestants as well. Lots of government officials were there. A very, very uh, prestigious occasion. The name of his address was ashamed of the gospel. And I began to read what this dear man wrote, and I began to weep. I couldn't hold the tears back. I said, he said it better than it's ever been said. With his permission, I quote to you from his speech. He said, the days of socially acceptable Christianity are over. The days of being a comfortable Catholic, he was speaking to Catholics, I would say the days of being a comfortable Baptist are past. It will no longer be easy to be a faithful Christian, an authentic witness to the truths of the gospel. A price is demanded, and it must be paid. There are costs of discipleship, heavy costs, costs that are burdensome and painful to bear, Of course, one can still go to church and identify oneself as a Christian. People will not necessarily think that you actually believe what the Bible teaches on such issues as marriage, sexual morality, and the sanctity of human life. But if you truly believe these things, be prepared to be completely silent or you will pay the cost. The professor continues, because America has lavished freedom and affluence upon us, we have become comfortable. We have ignored or forgotten the truth of Mark 8.34. There will be no ignoring it from now on, he said to that auspicious audience. Powerful forces are pressing you and me today to be ashamed of the gospel. 
Dr. George said, and I continue, and it is in these integral dimensions of the Gospels that powerful cultural forces and currents today demand that we deny or suppress the truth. These forces tell us that our defeat in the causes of marriage and human life are inevitable. They're warning us that we're on the wrong side of history. They warn us that we will be judged in the future in the way we today judge those who champion racial injustice. But ladies and gentlemen, history is not our judge. God is our judge, and history is not God. These forces insist we are retrograde, insensitive, bigoted, judgmental, even haters. These forces demand that we now call good evil and evil good. They are demanding we conform our thinking to their orthodoxy or that we go silent. If we refuse to be silent, they will call you a hobo. If you refuse to be silent, they will call you a homophobe. They will say that you represent a threat to people's safety and you ought to be ashamed. If you refuse to be silent, You are a misogynist, a hater of women, a threat to reproductive freedom. And you ought to be ashamed. And then Dr. George concludes, it is going to cost us to stand with Christ. Social standing, scorn, reproach, possible security, recognition, worldly honor, friendship, even in some cases family relationships, it will cause you, it will cost you to follow Christ. I brought my cell phone today, and I'm not going to call anybody. I sent him an email. I said to this Catholic professor, my brother, I feel closer to you than I do a lot of my liberal Baptist friends. And I never thought I'd hear from him, but he wrote me back within two hours. Dear Pastor, thanks for your kind words. They're much appreciated. Needless to say, the liberals are in an uproar about my speech. Michael Sean Winters at the National Catholic Reporter wrote a long denunciation of it as a culture war diatribe. But I do not care a whit what they think. I do care about what faithful Christians like you think. So it is truly a blessing for me to receive your encouragement. I am delighted to grant permission for you to use my speech and deliver it to your congregation in whatever way you please. I am, dear brother, yours faithfully, Professor Robert George. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the implications of the gospel? Are you being intimidated by the politically correct crowd today? Jesus said, whosoever's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. Ask Paul cost Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1, 16, but he lost his head because he was not ashamed. Ask Tim Tebow if it costs you anything today 
to be ashamed. How does a guy be the quarterback winning eight out of nine games that he quarterbacked and not get his contract renewed the next year? Ask the Benham brothers who are on the news right now who have a national real estate agency. And they shut down their television program before it ever had one episode because they took the biblical view of marriage. Ask Dr. Robert Carson, the number one pediatric neurosurgeon in the United States, what it cost him when he spoke the truth to power in the president's presence at the presidential prayer breakfast last year. Ask those three people if it cost. And thank God they were not ashamed of the gospel. Go back with me, that little white church up on that mountain. We sung the last verse, too. To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame. Note that word. And reproach. Gladly bear. But he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cling to the old rugged cross. I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. By the grace of God, my friends, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Our heads are bowed.